I'm Aaron Levy, the CEO and co-founder of Box. Welcome to Founder Calls. Founder Calls is like if Charlie Rose and Ira Glass had a really weird distant cousin that had an obsession with enterprise software. On these calls, we talk to CEOs, founders, and investors about building, selling, and scaling in the enterprise. Today, we're going to be talking to Mikkelsvein, the CEO and co-founder of Zendesk. Uh, I expect this to be a, a fun conversation, and he will win the award for best accent. So let's give him a call right now. Hello. Hey, Mikkel. Hi. Hey, Aaron Levy here. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Hey, pretty good. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking that uh, time to chat. No, no, no. My pleasure. How is life? Oh, life is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we're doing fantastic. Uh, Sanders is in a great state, and you know, I enjoy life in San Francisco. That's really good. Um, uh, so, do you know what we're doing right now? Yes, I think we're doing a podcast. Yeah, well, it's it's not technically a. It's sort of like a podcast slash phone call kind of deal. Okay. So uh, this is uh, this is founder calls where uh, where we talk about um, uh, how you build and scale enterprise software companies and what uh, what you do to kind of win in this current era of enterprise software. So um, so I guess just speaking of that, um, you wrote a book that um, did that come out at the beginning of this year or the middle of, the tail end of last year? I think that the U.S. release was in December last year. Yeah. Okay. Did that just take a while to translate or what? <laughs> they had to transcribe my crazy thoughts in Danish. No. <laughs> um, the uh, so what was the what, why'd you write a book and what was the book about? Oh, so the book is called uh, Startup Land, um, and it's really about a big emphasis is on the early days of of building Sendesk. Um, and I think part of the reason for for writing this book was to. You know, it's. I think it, there's a. I'm an outsider to the whole Silicon Valley, San Francisco startup ecosystem. Why? That's that's a strong San Francisco <coughs> accent you have. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing like a San Francisco accent? Does that really exist? I, I think it sounds like what what your voice is. <laughs> that's. <laughs> it's like yeah. a part Danish Russian kind of accent is like 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 the SF accent. All right. Yeah. So no, I'm so I'm Danish, and we started the company originally in in Copenhagen, Denmark, and bootstrapped it there for a couple of years before moving into San Francisco. So being part of this, uh, you know, you know, coming in as an outsider and, and building a company here, building a startup here, has just been a magnificent journey. And I don't think that people who's people who are out of this ecosystem and, and they don't understand how privileged they are and what a what an amazing opportunity and what an amazing place this is. So. Sharing that story, I think, can be an inspiration also for other founders and from other people just looking at this whole ecosystem, and maybe even for people inside the ecosystem that can learn a little bit about themselves that way. Yeah, and I want to get into some kind of practical kind of enterprise advice because you've obviously fought a lot of battles um, over the past, um, you know, kind of five uh, five plus years. Um, and uh, but before we get there, so do you do you think you had to leave Denmark to make? Zendesk success, and do you think that has to be the case for for other enterprise software companies, or what what drew you to the valley, and and how do you think you could have made it work without moving out here? Well, that's definitely you can always great companies can come 
every, it can be built everywhere. But I think there's a lot. You have a lot better chance of succeeding, and especially succeeding at scale if if you move your tech startup to San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, I think there's a lot of exceptions to that rule. I think there are great companies like Mailchimp and Shopify and other companies, Squarespace in New York, that have been built outside of the uh, San Francisco Silicon Valley ecosystem. But there's just a lot higher probability of success here in California. Um, and then Europe, that's a totally different story. Like it was just five years ago, it was almost impossible to raise money in, in Europe. And, and like we could never had kind of in small Denmark, it's a small economy, five million people. You know, it's like you don't, you don't go out and raise like a $20 million round in, in Denmark. You just don't do that. When, why has that not changed yet? I mean, because the economy there is is quite strong, and and there should be some capital that can go back into the ecosystem. Has that begun to change? It it has begun to change, and you definitely see improvement. And there's a much stronger startup ecosystem uh, today than there was just five years ago. Right. But still, you know, the the scale is still, you know, very different. If a if a if a Danish entrepreneur emails you right now and and asks for an angel round or fu- or seed funding, and they're going to stay in Denmark, will you fund them? So I don't, I don't do any kind of investments at all. So Okay, uh, well that ruins yeah. that question. <laughs> so uh, that was really fun. Uh, no, but okay. I think <laughs> No, but I think that, you know, if you are a startup founder, wherever regardless of where you are, you know, spending a lot of time here in the valley in San Francisco and learning from learning from this whole ecosystem is just like incredibly valuable for you. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it will change the whole it will change how you think about the company and you the you know, how big you can think the company and so on. So I think regardless of where you decide to build your company, spending time here is incredibly valuable. Completely agreed. And we, we had a similar story, although uh, the move was basically just a couple hundred miles. So um, uh, it was a little bit of a different impact from a lifestyle standpoint. Um, what what was that? It was Seattle or what was it? Well, I was going to school in LA. Um, we, we sort of tried uh, building the company in Seattle. And, um, and, you know, Seattle is sort of like the Denmark of America. Um, and so uh, we, we, we weren't able to, to weather or what? Uh, in terms of uh, venture capitalists. Um, okay. So so, uh, so nobody in Seattle wanted to fund us. So we had to um, we had to come back to uh, we had to come to California um, and then specifically the Bay Area to uh, to build the company. So very, very similar kind of story. Um, so what, what drove you to Seattle in the first place? First of all, this is my interview of you. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, but I'll grant you that one question. Um, so. Uh, we, I grew up in Seattle, so okay. that was pretty straightforward. Okay. Yep. Makes right. sense. Yep. <laughs> well, then, and I, okay. Now I'll just go down this this tangent for a second. But the um, <laughs> I would say we would not have moved to the Bay Area had it not been I have an uncle out here that gave us free rent. Yeah. So it is those like small serendipitous yeah. things that um, uh, that do change your your fundamental decisions. And and it's too bad because not everybody has an uncle um, that will give them free rent in uh, in the Bay Area. So. Um, True. So we need more uncles and aunts everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so, uh, okay, so what, taking back to just the, the origin of, of Zendex, are you just like, do you just have like one, one, like one too many bad interactions with like a customer support like person at like, a, like a, a shopping website? Or like how did, why did you decide to start this company? Yeah, no, so, so true, like Zendesk is a customer service software uh, platform and, um, um, and uh, we 
two of us, we're three founders of the company, two of us spent a few years in that industry. So we helped other companies implementing those type of systems from a both from a technology perspective, but also from a business process perspective. And I think that we were just incredibly underwhelmed with the quality of the software and how old it felt, you know. It was like getting these things to work with just your website or your email was incredibly complicated tasks. So you're just, you're just hanging around with your friends and you're like, let's build customer support software. Yeah, let's just let's just build a better system for this. And who are the who are the incumbents um, in the space at the time? There's a bunch of industry specific solutions, a vertical right. solutions. But of course, like Oracle with the Scopers and the Siebel acquisition, they had some stuff. Uh, they've since added more stuff to their portfolio of customer service solutions. Right, and what was the original idea? So let's build better designed, faster to market, cloud-based customer support, and and we'll just you know produce a better experience, and it'll work for it'll democratize customer support software. Yeah, I think that the whole intention was to just like bring people to result out of the gate. So time to value is, is obviously super key to your value proposition. What yeah. what did investors initially say, US investors initially say when they saw this? Was was did everybody kind of was were people were incredibly receptive? Did you run into any issues? What what happened? No, there's a ton of skepticism and I think like I think a lot of people kind of thought about, well, this customer support, this help this market, that's saturated, you know, that's done. Mm. It's over. Nobody we don't need any more innovation there. Um, but but uh, that's where we kind of proved them wrong that you know and, and I think that's also where time was on our side that you know that with the whole social media and all these different things the voice of the customer suddenly changed dramatically in a very few years and 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 uh, and and that suddenly changed how people or how companies perceived the customer service interaction that suddenly it was a much more public experience. And they had to elevate it and take it to a, a, a new level. So, so there was this other kind of cultural inflection point where people just cared about their interactions with companies and brands, and they had so many more medium mediums by which they could either complain about those interactions or by which they would actually want to have those interactions happen. So, did did you did you anticipate that inflection point, or or, or how did you capitalize it uh, capitalize on it once it actually happened? No, I think like we didn't, as I said, like we didn't really have like a big business plan. We didn't predict any of this. Okay. We didn't say that, oh, it's this arrival of the subscription economy and it will be much more important for customers <laughs> or companies to, you know, maintain the long-term lifetime value relationship of their customers. And, you know, we didn't think about services like, you know, all these convenience services like Postmates and Uber and Airbnb that are so dependent on just a great experience. Right. That so that these companies overinvest in their customer service. We didn't think about any of these things. We just wanted to build a better product, basically. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, okay, so Charles River uh, invests, um, and then you say we're, we're going big, um, and then uh, and then and then you IPO'd or something like that. What what happened between those two events? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but that's true. Then you know between these two events, like our first investment and the IPO, there was five years and it was a crazy ride. Okay. So let's <laughs> but, talk about that. So <laughs> yeah, but like so we, we decided we came over to the US with the Charles River investment. It was a relatively small Tuesday. Um and uh, but at the same time a lot of stuff just happened. Like we started I think one of the one of the one of the things that changed our uh, the perception of Sandesk at least was that a bunch of the kind of the Silicon Valley San Francisco companies started using our product ah. um, and that really um, 
suddenly we came on the radar from a lot of the VCs because they could, you know, they heard about Sandisk from their portfolio companies. Um, and so suddenly, I think, you know, two months after we, uh, Charles River made the investments, CRV made the investments, we had like five, six different uh, VCs wanting to preempt the next round. And that was a completely sur surreal situation to be in. They all flew into Copenhagen and spent time with us. And wow. that was a lot of fun. Did you take any of their money? Yeah, we, we ended up going with Benchmark. Okay. Uh, and uh, that turned out to be a great partner for us. How do you know... When, um, how, how do you know when your focus needs to maybe evolve? Maybe, maybe it's sort of like you kind of go one, one layer out from the concentric circle that you're in and, and you need to expand the sort of the, 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 and evolve the strategy so you're still focused but you are, are doing something a little bit broader. How, how many moments or any recent moments where you've, you've begun to do that? Well, I think we do that all the time. And I think that's been one of our strengths that we are very – we're quick on our feet and, and, you know, always, you know, paranoid, like that being never being satisfied, never always believe that we can do better and, and, and having a will also to go back and re-engineer core parts of our product and always keeping that up to date and, and taking those investments, making those investments in always making sure that we have the best product and, and constantly involve our business model, constantly involve our product line, constantly involve our go-to-market. I think that's, and that's one of the things I think that we've learned here in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, is that there's just no rest so um, and so, how do you how will you decide then if if uh, there's something happening in or around your space, but you don't think you need to react to it, or maybe said another way, how do you decide what you don't want to do or what you don't want to get into? Well, I think that it's uh, is that well, too, I think, too I think weird of a question. No, but I think we have a strong vision vision for how we see the whole, the world of of ultimately of CRM involved, yes. and 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 I think that. That's a different vision that a lot of other uh, companies have out there. So I think as long as we feel that we're always moving in that direction um, without getting too distracted and without, you know, veering in, in different directions just for the sake of, of, of quarterly revenue or anything like that, I, I feel confident in the organization. Okay, so let's say a customer comes to you and they say, um, uh, I, I have a 10,000-person call center and I need these really, really advanced features and that customer is the only customer of that kind of scale. Let's just let's just say whatever that scale needs to be at. And you're you're deciding to either build something to solve their problem or build something to solve, let's say, twenty customers that are a thousand people, um, that a thousand seat kind of customers. How do you think about the trade offs of, uh, of of solving problems for for different audiences in your in your customer base? Well, it, again, like it, it's a you know you have to sit down and make this call. Like how how unique a, a, a how unique a situation is this? Um, and sometimes you sometimes that unique situation can be a, a dead end. You know, you can see that okay, there's five companies that that needs this, and mm -hmm. like when we have saturated those five customers, they'll be it. But they will take up a lot of our time and our you know our resources. But sometimes. You know, you also find these unique opportunities to work with a unique set of customers where you can see that we can actually identify other companies like these right now. But we believe that these guys are some of these type of customers that are seen that are at the forefront of the world of disrupting CRM and so on. And like working with those, uh, we can help this we can help change the whole direction of an industry. And I think we've been very very fortunate in our career that we've been working with companies, you know, some of these 
companies that changed industries like from one day to the other, like early days with Groupon, like they really, really like they scaled like crazy and I was like supporting that global rollout like they had was just an amazing opportunity for us. And we learned so much about customer service worldwide. Mm-hmm. Also working with a company like Uber, for example, that had really put the customer experience at the center of the operations and I think that you know Uber is a great customer for, of ours but we've also learned so much from them and we think that a lot of other companies are going to try to be exactly like Uber also in their customer service operations so you know sometimes you have to make that trade off like is this is this, this can be worth the while because we believe the rest of the industry will go that way or this cannot be worth the while because we believe there's only like five customers that are going in that direction. So this is where, where as a founder, you almost need to be making bets on on the future, not just of your own business and product, but of the future of your customers and sort of decide is is a certain customer behavior representative of where there might where they're, they're at the bleeding edge of something that might actually become the standard over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think that's that's your job as a as a both as a CEO as a founder. You know, you have to constantly push the organization to make those kind of, of decisions, like where you where you like where you where it's not only about the revenue and the sort, but like really about the future of the company. So sometimes your best customers are those that that just take you in the craziest and most extreme directions, not the ones that you're serving the best at the moment that you sell to them. That that can in many cases be the be the case yeah and it could also be the thing that ruins your business completely yeah so so good luck on making the right call on that one okay great what um what has changed about the sales process in in this new generation of enterprise software you said kind of disrupt the sales process what what do you mean by that and how have you changed sales at at zendesk maybe relative to oracle or um, or other kind of incumbent competitors. I consider myself very much the patient zero for our own application and for how we do stuff. Like I'm not an engineer myself, um, but I'm relatively tech savvy. Um, and if you put me down in front of something and I can figure it out myself without help and without a manual and all these different things, I feel pretty sure that you know most people will be able to figure it out because I'm not a very you know patient tech user. <laughs> right. The question though is is that some of these sales processes take three or six months. So what? How are you? Has any of that been reinvented in uh, in the Zendesk world? Well, I think that we we try. We constantly try. So we um, we didn't we didn't really have salespeople until we had almost ten thousand customers beco- before we added salespeople. And we started with inside salespeople, and they was all like inbound driven so a lot of marketing a lot of stuff making the product easy to use and then basically convert trialers into better customers and by having inside salespeople, we could answer these questions they have about this and that and we could help them with a demo and help them you know maybe negotiate something around the contract and so on and that took us up to a new level and a new set of customers and more and more we are being dragged into these larger opportunities the larger enterprises where we need to have you know we need to have people on the ground we need to be able to you know make a mini conference with them or, or or sit down with their security people and do a security audit and, and right. all these different things and and like so but I think our, our, we, we constantly have this charter where we try to say okay like how can we how can we you know compress the stack in terms of the sales operation so we constantly try to say like these kind of customers that we use that we use to have a sales process for, let's see how we can automate that. And and that goes outside of sales to a lot of the other departments, legal, finance, marketing, etc., uh, to make sure we can do that. But I think that is like that is 
that is ultimately what democratization is all about, like figuring out how you can just make things easier and simpler, more inexpensive, and put it in, hand of, in the hands of people uh, in a much easier way. So we, we, you know, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I, uh, I didn't say anything, but I actually, I'd love to if I can. <laughs> what are are you doing things like are are you going as far as like the steak dinners now at this point or or how do you you know if you were to go sell to a uh, 100,000 employee company I mean that that's going to involve you personally at, at this point Well I think like if you work if you work with a company you know and you they that company have that company has like three, four hundred, five hundred people using your product every single day for managing a core customer segment or managing you know patients or something something like that you know, they need to trust you and they need to be able to build that trust you, not only from being just a software program, but that here are real people that will help us out. when we right. And those people, you need to invest time in those. And you need to kind of figure out the proper way of, of building that relationship with those people. And, and that, you can never come, you can never, you know, you can never, you know, you can never commoditize completely like the real relationship because that's a big part of it. But what about a really good chat bot? <laughs> could that could that not fully commoditize it? Like, are you guys doing anything with AI at all? No, not at all. No, not at all. No, but I think like uh, one of the early things we did, like uh, when we still were a pure self service business, is that we always had these meetups and or drink ups as yes. we were, you know. And it was all about us just paying the bar, or the check, the the, the uh, what do you call it, the paying the tab somewhere at some bar and getting people together. And I think you know that part that. You know that just having that ability to say, okay, here's real people you can meet, the real relationships you can build, and it's not just a web service, and it's, it's not just a website, but it is actual people. Were actually very important for us in the early days, and I think that's also something that we need to scale. And that's why you know that's why you're doing a conference, and that's why you know that is that is still important. Right. Right. Okay. So so you get to scale. It seems like you uh, you you have a, a, an incredibly strong position in the market and. What what leads you to deciding to to take the company public? Uh, so that's a as you know that's a process you kind of start leaning into and and start having considerations about it. I think for me, I think that realizing at some point that this was actually something we could do. You know that this was not just a you know this kind of weird concept, but this was actually something that if we executed, that we could actually take the company public. And I think you know once you kind of once you get a taste for that that's a real opportunity and, and you can actually do that suddenly like there's come part of you just want to do it because you can do it hmm. <laughs> okay <laughs> um, but i think also it i think in many ways i think being a public company was in our destiny you know yes. like we, we've always been a company that is incredibly transparent about how we do and proud about what we do and and, and want to have more stakeholders and shareholders in the company and and so in many ways it was a very natural thing for us to do it was also a lot of work <laughs> yes. um, as you know uh, and it's a it's a stressful experience actually i i had my co-founder do most of it so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I feel sorry about the amount of work we put on our fa finance and our legal teams in that in that period because it's it's a crazy amount of work. Yes. Um, 
but it, I think it's, it was worth it. Like, it's a great event for this company. And I think the real interesting thing is that we see it very much just the beginning of a new chapter for us. And, and, uh, and, and people are incredibly motivated and was incredibly motivated by the whole experience. So it's been a lot of fun for us. Yeah. And how do you keep the, how do you, and this is actually just personal advice for me at this point. So I don't even know if uh, anybody's going to care listening, but how do you keep the startup culture alive now that you're kind of post public? And well, <laughs> this is if you can just uh, just asking for a friend. <laughs> I don't, you know, and so what? What you know? I don't know what defines a startup. I think your book, your book, probably right. <laughs> well, you you um, you know when you grow as fast as we do, you know, and and you you're probably in the same situation where something like half your staff has been with you for less than a year. Yeah. You know, when you're in that situation, you are almost a new company every year. Oh wow! And and no, but you are in many ways, you know, because you have to retell the whole story, and everybody has to like so many things around your company have changed in such a short period of time. Um, and I think that is ultimately what defines a startup: that it's somebody who can really cope with change really, really well at scale. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that as as long as we can. Keep a culture of embracing change and yeah. really fry with change, and not be too afraid of making decisions that we don't completely understand. <laughs> I think that I think we are, we we are positioned great for you know that startup culture or whatever you want to call it. That's um, that's actually a really good point. So it's actually the rate of change of even new people coming on board relative to the base that yeah. kind of keeps that going and, and keeps that alive as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, Maybe final topic from a, a philosophy standpoint and the future of enterprise software. Um, Zendesk has been one of the leaders in, um, I would just say broadly, sort of this idea of openness and um, a, a, from a technology standpoint. So making sure that your product is integrated with all the different services that your customers are going to need. Um, certainly that's a competitive advantage against a lot of legacy incumbents. How do you see the, the future of enterprise software broadly um, you know, in that lens of openness and com mixing and matching and combining these different capabilities to, to deliver um, the future kind of IT environment? Well, I, I think that's a real important uh, element here. And I think that, I think that more and more like larger enterprises start to realize that, that the whole notion of like you consolidate on a platform from, from one vendor starts to make, make so little sense, you know, because they realize that even if they try to consolidate on, you know, Oracle, like Oracle is a mix, mix match of all kinds of applications they right. bought over the year. And none of this stuff is probably integrated. Um, so what they really have is that they, they consolidate on a salesperson. It's Sendesk and a bunch of other new generation enterprise software companies represent a new generation of companies where we think about the internet as our platform. What, um, one thing I want to call out, and maybe if you have any other interesting context, I was really impressed by this last week where um, you guys announced with Facebook, with Facebook Messenger, um, to be able to um, incorporate with, uh, with kind of chatting with businesses. Um, that's a pretty interesting sort of context shift where you have traditional uh, next generation enterprise software working with these new consumer companies. Is that something that we'll see more of? Any, anything you want to share on that, uh, on that partnership? We used to be so dependent on our, you know, calling or emailing, and and all of these channels are quickly being replaced by new channels. And and Facebook Messenger is definitely one of the big channels out there. And it's it's great to it's been amazing to work with these guys and kind of and and you know embrace their vision and and provide a really good business back end 
for the messenger platform. And, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Like it's for companies today, it's about engaging. It's about engaging customers where customers naturally uh, uh, go around and do their things. And, and that's not going to be on voice, voice or email or any of these things going forward. Like it's going to be on all these new messaging paradigms. Right. And, and, uh, and if businesses don't get out there and, 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 and use those channels, embrace those channels, it'll be really, really hard for them to create relationships with a new generation of uh, consumers. Well, and that, that certainly highlights um, that you guys will be on the right architecture for a lot of the growth uh, yeah. in the next couple of years. What um, Final question, um, what internet company do you think does the best customer support, um, obviously besides Box? I think that there are a bunch of companies out there that are, uh, are doing some radical things that are admirable. And, and uh, I think that we've been so privileged to work with a bunch of these companies through history, including Box, of course. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> where, um, where they really like, where, they, where you really feel as a consumer, as a customer of theirs, that they are that they put you at the center of the operations and they try to do business for you rather than, you know, then they try to make it really, really easy for you to be that customer and, and engage with you about the issues or the problems or the questions that you have. And I think that's been, that's been fundamental, especially for a new generation of companies where the, the customer experience is just key and core to their, uh, to their, uh, to their strategy. So I think again, I, I mentioned companies like Uber and Airbnb before. It's just right. it's very it's very inspiring to see those kind of companies. But we see it we see it getting more and more into also traditional enterprises, especially in retail. Yep. Uh, where they try to have a completely new attitude toward uh, customer service. And okay, now I have to do the reverse though. Who's doing it the worst? And clearly, this wouldn't be a Zendesk customer. So who who out there is uh, is really bad at customer support? <laughs> well, you know, customer customer support at scale is incredibly hard. Yes. You know? And and we think about a company like United. We've all, <laughs> all of us all of us have complained about United. But yes. it's also like it's like running like they have millions of people using their service every single day and we all have an incredibly, you know, personal experience with that. And it like scaling customer service at at that degree must be really hard for them. But I think that's also an opportunity for, you, for a company like United to go out there and embrace the fact that this is just really, really hard and, and like working with their customers on like how can we just be much better at this. And they could just update their website and that might help things as well. So, <laughs> that, so I would say hire a web designer and buy Zendesk and, um, and that would be like a pretty good like, like um, 2015 corporate strategy for United. So... Um, okay, Mikkel, uh, you got to uh, you got to probably jump um, and uh, and thank you very much for doing the call and make sure to continue to transform the world of customer support and uh, uh, and enterprise software. Will do. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, man.